Good morning. It's good to see you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for loving the Word of God and looking into Scripture so faithfully to find our life in Christ. Let's begin this morning with a word of prayer. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have given to us your Son and that in him is life. Thank you that he is our, our high priest, our, our brother, our Savior, our Lord. We pray that we would find our utmost sufficiency in him in all things. And we pray that you would refresh us in your word this morning and equip us with the truth so that we would be able to walk through life and glorify you in ways that you would call us and enable us to, even in the difficulties of life. Teach us, Lord, we pray. We look to you. Your face we seek. We pray in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. Last week, we, we started looking at some texts of Scripture. I just spent some time sharing with you. I know that it is important that when when we face trials in our lives, that we have a well-trodden path of texts of Scripture that we walk through uh, to remind us of what is true. And we, we confessed together last week that trials can be weighty. Do you agree? Whether they're national trials that we look at on the news and read about on line and, and our hearts grow heavy with the things that we're seeing or their personal trials that weigh us down, they're there. God has ordained these things for us. And so there, there is so much temptation in a trial to despair, to forget God, to be anxious, um, to escape, to just fill our minds with things that are outside of the realities of life. And so it is so important that when those moments of trial come upon us, that we know where to go in Scripture, that we, we fill our minds with God's Word, and, and that we bear fruit then for, for God in righteousness and holiness, and, and, and we're comforted in His truth. So last week, if I had to put a title on this couple of weeks of just sharing some text with you, I'd say this is the title, Looking at trials through the lens of God's Word. You see, this is absolutely true. That if we look at God and look at ourselves through the lens of trials, and just let the trials and how we feel in the trials dictate to us what we think, we will, we will be discouraged. We will despair. We will be anxious. But if we flip those glasses around and look at our trials through the lens of God's character and the Word of God, we will learn to see them rightly and walk in them in a way that brings glory to our Savior. So last week, we could look at the first four lenses in God's Word. The first one, you'll remember, we look through the lens of God's loving purpose and we looked at Romans 8. So if you didn't get these texts last week, just jot them down. Looking, look through the lens of God's loving purpose Romans 8, that is such a precious chapter, isn't it? Um, the second one we looked at, look through the lens of hope. And the text we pointed to was 1 Peter 1, 3-9. through the third, the third lens of God's Word, look through the lens of God's strength. And we pointed to texts like 1 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Psalm 73.26 My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We looked at 1 Corinthians 2.1-4. And the fourth lens we looked at last week is look through the lens of Christ's righteousness. We can all confess that again, when, when the weight of trials and, and struggles becomes very heavy, is there any one of us that hasn't complained at some point, right? And hasn't felt the sinful anxiety that would creep over us? And so what do we do? Sometimes as we see our sin come to the surface under the heat of trials, 
it's a temptation to despair further. But Hebrews 5 is the text. Hebrews 5 tells us, look to Christ who suffered under the weight of trials perfectly so that he could be our righteousness. So again, when we are under the weight of trials and, and we are even seeing our sin be pressed out because of those trials, we can still run to Christ. He is our righteousness. And, and it's such a wonderful blessing of joy to know that even when we perform badly in trials, God, Jesus Christ, perform, 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 performed perfectly and treats us and relates to us as He did, as He does His own Son. Let's look at a fifth lens this morning. Look at the lens. Look through. Look at your trials through the lens of a Father's discipline. Turn with me to Hebrews 12. And and again, I, I am not being exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination with the text that we're looking at. It's just... I'm just uh, brushing the surface. I'm just wanting to give you uh, a, a pathway to walk on so that you can take each one of these texts and go deeper. And I hope that you will. I hope that when you are struggling in the years ahead when trials do come, uh, that you will run to these texts and find them to be rich food for you if you haven't already. Hebrews 12 I want to read for us verses 1 through 11. This is looking through trials at the lens of a father's discipline. Therefore, Hebrews 12:1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you ha- have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them but He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The main command in this text that he's talking about discipline and the Lord's suffering is verse, one of the main commands here is verse 3, consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. Why does the writer here tell us to consider Him? Because in a trial, in the heaviness of trials, it is our temptation to what grow weary and faint-hearted. That's a temptation in the trial. And so he gives us some living encouragement so that in the weight and the heat of the trial, we will not grow weary or faint-hearted as we otherwise would. So what is the encouragement? First, he says, just consider Jesus. 
You're not alone in your trial. Jesus, your Savior, with whom you are united with, believer, has suffered every trial of the human experience and in far greater measure than you and I ever will. He knows what it's like to suffer. Jesus does. And in fact, His suffering was so profound that He suffered unto the point of shedding His own blood. Right? I mean, could... This is a glorious thought to me. Sometimes in a trial, sometimes in a trial we think, God, have you forgotten me? Are you abandoning me? Are you leaving me to myself and my own corruption? And then you remember, wait a minute, no. Jesus suffered. And when He suffered, in His suffering, God did turn. The Father turned on Him in His suffering so that in our suffering the Father would never have to turn on us. Isn't that good news? Jesus knew what it was like to be turned on in the wrath of God in His darkest hour so that we would never have to know that. And that accomplished our salvation. And so the the writer here says, look at these things. Now Jesus is the founder of your faith. He's the perfecter of your faith. He's doing something in you through this trial. So, So think about Him and don't grow weary in this trial. God is busy at work doing things for your good. And and he he calls you, look at verse 4, it's interesting. He goes, think about how much have you really suffered? The writer's saying, how much have you really suffered? You haven't struggled against sin up to the point of shedding your blood, have you? And we all have to answer, no, I haven't. But who did? Jesus Christ did. Didn't He shed His blood in order to struggle and win the war against your sin? He did. And so now, you have a lesser suffering, not not an atoning suffering, when, when you are being disciplined by God, but a discipline that works for your good and for His glory. You know, sometimes when we think of the, when someone tells us, well, are you being disciplined by God in this trial? Sometimes we think of discipline as this like punitive measure. Like, um, oh, I, I did something wrong and now God is hammering me for that. That's not the meaning of the word discipline. Do you know the meaning of the word discipline here? It's the same as the word disciple. To learn. To be trained. To be a follower. And so what this text does for us is it broadens our understanding of God's discipline in our lives. In fact, it tells us God's discipline doesn't just come when someone is rebellious in sin. Who does it come to? Every believer. And for what purpose? To produce holiness. This is a glorious truth in the midst of a weighty trial. My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't be weary when reproved by Him. Because what? Did you see those next words? Who does the Lord discipline like this? The ones whom He loves. You know, we tend to think that when we are being pressed in a trial, that God's, we feel this way, God's affection for us has diminished. If you were honest, have you ever felt that way? We tend to think that God is blessed. This is the culture of our country. God blesses us when we're healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. That's not what this text says. This text shows us that God is showing to us the greatest of affection when He is disciplining us. Is that true? It's true. We have to think differently about trials and, and disciplines. He loves us in this. And in fact, He chastises, He trains, He he, um, works for the purification of every son whom He receives. Is any any believer left out of that? No. Every son whom He receives. In fact, this writer in Hebrews flips the whole concept around on us. He said, you should be concerned if you're never being disciplined by God. It's for discipline that we endure. God is treating you as a son. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? Do you hear it? 
If you are left without discipline then in which all sons have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. So this writer's encouraging us to, to tell us a couple of things here so that we don't grow weary and faint-hearted. First, Christ suffered to overcome our sin far, far more than we will ever have to suffer in, in our spiritual growth. And he endured. He despised the shame. We are united with him. He is the founder, perfecter of our faith. And when we, when we are disciplined under weighty trials, it proves to us that God loves us. It demonstrates God's love. It proves that we are true sons and daughters of God. And that's what our earthly fathers did. But here's another encouragement I want to point out to you. I'm, I'm skipping over so much here. Verse 10, here's another encouragement. For, for they disciplined us. Our earthly fathers did so for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may what? Underline that, that we may share in His holiness. You see, if you're a believer, if you have been born of God within your heart, the Word of God calls from you new affections and desires before in the world, before you were born of God, before you were forgiven, before you were united with Christ, the things you wanted were like, man, I, I just want a nice house. I want a new truck. I want a great job. I want a great salary. I want a beautiful wife. I want a handsome husband. I want those are those are good things. But then, as the Spirit of God works in you, you start saying things like, "Man, I want to be holy. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be done with all this putrid sin in my life. I want my heart to be changed. I want to love people like Christ loves me. I want to learn how to forgive." And you get a you get a new Christmas list, right? As a believer, and so. When God puts training in your life and He presses you in trials, He's doing that and He's answering your desires and He's making you holy. How many times have you prayed as a believer and you've, you've said, God, please do this in my life. And then what follows those prayers? Trial. And what is He doing? He's answering your prayer. And it's good. He's showing you He loves you. He's showing you're His son and His daughter. And He's, he's making you holy. And yet, he relates with us because in verse 11 he says, well, for the moment, all discipline seems what? Painful. It is. I love that the Scripture writers don't live with their heads in the clouds. They don't be like, yeah, just, just suck it up, you're fine. Everything's great. That's not the way they write. They say, yes, this is painful. Carry that side of trials and tests too. Carry that, right? Hold on. It is painful. It's grievous. Paul talks about that all the time. He goes, he's got lists of his suffering in 2 Corinthians. He's just like, yeah, I was sleepless nights and I was shipwrecked and I was beaten like 43 times. You know, I don't remember the numbers, but he, he had a horrible life, right? In human estimation. But he said, this is working for the glory of Christ. He holds those two things in contrast. And he rejoices because what God is working through trials and tests and discipline is always of far greater value than what is lost. And that's why Paul says he can rejoice always. And so that's what this writer says. And it may have been Paul. I don't know. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This text sets us up to receive trials very differently, doesn't it? Help us to see them differently. And then he goes back to that same encouragement. Okay, lift up your drooping hands then. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. Walk in this way when you're, when you're being disciplined by God. Receive it from Him. Strive for peace and holiness. God will enable you to. Well, that's just, that's just the beginning for Hebrews 12. I, I just want to whet your appetite to get back into that text when you feel the weight of a trial. Let's look at another lens together this morning. So first, look through the lens of a father's discipline. I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a few other texts with that one. Hebrews 12, 1 through 11 or 12, 13. Jot down next to that 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, 1 and following, because Peter sort of has the same idea there. He says, those who have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin. Suffering is God's 
gracious, loving tool to help us to overcome sin. First Peter 4 talks about that. Psalm 32 is another great one. The one who, whose transgressions are forgiven, who's sin and covered, and it's David the psalmist there then reminds us, don't be like, don't be like a, a stubborn mule when God is training you and calling you from your sin. Another great text there. All right, a second lens for this morning. Look through the lens of a father's knowledge. Let's turn back to Matthew 6. This is a part of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look through the lens of a father's knowledge. So first, look through the lens of a father's discipline. Look through the lens of a father's knowledge. I want to read Matthew 6, 24-34. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these." But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Look through the lens of a father's knowledge. First, I just want to point out in verse 24 that everyone is serving a master. And let me suggest to you that our concept of master in 2021 isn't really the same idea of master that was in the first century when uh, Matthew wrote this gospel. Master today has such a a different concept in that it's darkened by American history. Master in the first century was a good thing. In fact, people would take refuge in their master. They would look to their master to, to provide for them. In fact, many, many people would voluntarily say, I want to be your slave, your servant forever. You love me. I'm being well cared for. And there was good human relationships very often between masters and slaves and masters and servants. And, and so a, 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 a slave or a servant would look to that master for security and, and protection and, and sustenance and, 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 and satisfaction, the provisions of life. And so in this context, Jesus is saying everybody's looking to something as a master, something that will give them a sense of security and success and satisfaction and, and sustenance. And, and so it's either typically it's either God or things of earth. But it can't be both. <laughs> either God is your master or the things of earth are your master. You look to God to be your security and your refuge and your provider and so on. Or you look to the things of earth. And so, so you know that if people draw security and satisfaction from the stuff that is around them and their ability to manage earthly resources, if their security and success is, is measured by those things, then their master is not God. What do we trust in for those things? And, and, and so the test of well, who my master is is, is, is often 
The reality of who my master is is often revealed in a test and a trial when the things of earth begin to be stripped away. That's my point here. I think that's part of what Jesus' point is. Boy, when the things that I at one time found security and satisfaction and strength in are beginning to disappear, then it shows me who my master is. Because if those things are my master, I am going to be filled with anxiety and, and, and depression and despair often and be like, man, my world is falling apart. What are we going to do? All these things are gone. They're, they're leaving quickly. And yet the person who says, no, God is my master and He can provide for me regardless of what happens to the earthly things around me. And so one of the most comforting things in a trial, in a test, when the things of earth are being removed, is that our Father knows everything we need before we even know it, before we ask for it. And He tells us in verse 25, Jesus says, look at this, don't be anxious about your life. It's a great phrase. Don't be anxious about your, your very life. Look at verse 27. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Verse 32. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Are, are we often anxious about our lives? We are. We really are. And we try to heap around ourselves when, when trials are moving things around. We try to heap around ourselves those things that we feel will preserve life. And that's natural to us. And when we can't get a hold of anything, we're tempted to feel anxious. And it's then we have to remember, do we determine the length of our lives? What's the answer to that? No, we don't. We can't add a single hour to our lives. We don't determine how long our lives are ultimately. That's, that's in the hands of God alone. And our Heavenly Father knows exactly what we need for every day that He's planned for us. That's just true. Even though it's hard to remember. Sometimes when believers are in a trial, they look like Gentiles. <laughs> like verse 32 says, we, we act, we think, we look like unbelievers. We're just seeking after all those things in order to try to prop up life. It doesn't mean we should, shouldn't act responsibly to try to... Um, to pursue solutions. That's a good thing. But that must not be our master. That must not be where our hope lies. I've been encouraged in these days with Proverbs 16.20. It says something like this, it is good to search a matter out. It's a good thing to pursue a solution. It's a good thing to investigate and try to find out the right path to go. And blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. We can make a plan for preservation in any trial. But our trust must never be in the plan. It must be in God alone. It must be in God alone. And when it is in God alone, we acknowledge Him as our Master and we, 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 can, we can overcome anxiety that way. And ultimately, anxiety is crushed simply by the truth that our Sovereign Father knows Take that in again in verse 32. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He knows. And then, you know what? You know what? It's great comfort in trials to just look out in nature. Just, just at what Jesus talks about. Just, you can, sometimes you can just close your Bible and look out your picture window. This, this is the biblical argument for having bird feeders. This is it, right here, okay? Matthew 6 tells us that every Christian ought to have a bird feeder. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But you look at the birds. God feeds them. And so Jesus is saying, look at those birds! God feeds them every day. He's going to feed you too. He will sustain your life as long as He desires to. And, and this is the biblical argument for having flowers. You cannot put clothes on your back that are as beautiful and ornate as the petals of a flower. Not for one day. And yet God does that every day. And He says, I'll clothe you too. 
for as long as I want you to be alive. I will feed you. I will clothe you. That's just a way of saying, I know everything you need and I will take care of all your needs for as long as I have planned to do so. So then, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And don't be anxious about tomorrow. God has sufficient grace for every day that He's planned for you. So, one, look through the lens of a father's discipline. Two, look through the lens of a father's knowledge. Three, look through the lens of God's sovereignty. Would you turn to 1 Peter 5? I appreciate you letting me jump all over like this. I, sometimes I just enjoy sharing the things that have been on my heart that I've been thinking about with you. I know it's atypical. I don't typically give a sermon like this, but thank you for letting me give you these little different sorts of sermons in the last couple of weeks. First Peter 5, 6-11. It's been a great encouragement. First Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The first thing that I want to point out to you in this text is the bookends of verses 5-11. through 11. What do you see at the beginning of verse 6? I'm sorry, 6-11. through 11. What do you see at the beginning? Humble yourselves under what? The mighty hand of God. What do you see at the end of verse 11? To Him be the dominion forever and ever. What is that a statement of? The sovereignty of God. Package this whole text, verses 6-11, through 11, in the sovereignty of God, because Peter does. And we're and he's going to talk about how to think in times of suffering and trial and test. And so the point is this initially God is sovereign over all of it. Don't ever think for a moment that God is not sovereign over the events of your life, not even the, the smallest details. God is in absolute control of all of it. Jeremy brought this up a few Sundays ago when we were reading through the misery of Job and the mercy of God, so many people in the world, have you found this to be true? So many of the people of the world try to rescue God from His own sovereignty. What do I mean by that? Well, when they hit a difficult time, they bring God around to a different position. They don't say, no, God isn't sovereign over this. If God was sovereign over this, He wouldn't have let it happen. He wouldn't be so mean to do something like this to my, to my physical life, to my, to my existence here. No, no, He can't. In fact, no, I think God is as surprised about this as I am. And, and in fact, I think He's just crying alongside me with this. That's not the God of the Bible. God, when we... When, I love the way John Piper puts it in there. We must not throw the sovereignty of God overboard in the, in the ship of trials. In fact, what we need in the, in the ship of trials to, to stabilize it is the sovereignty of God. It's such a temptation to, to us as human beings to think that the sovereignty of God is our enemy, both in salvation and in trials. We think, no, the sovereignty of God is what's holding me back from knowing for sure that I'm saved. And it's like, absolutely, the opposite is true. If you're dependent on your own will and your own decision for salvation, I don't know how you could ever get any assurance of your salvation. But knowing that the sovereign God is at work in your heart and, and bringing you to Christ, and you see the fruit of His sovereign work in your life, you're like, yes, I know I'm saved now because the sovereign God has brought it about. And the same thing with trials. Like, oh, 
God, you can't be in this and over this. And no, yes, He is. And so therefore, if He is sovereign over my trial, there is good design for me in the trial. Isn't God? I mean, just read through the pages of Scripture and you'll find God is a master of turning sorrows into joy. I mean, take it right to the cross. Was God sovereign over the cross? Yes! Every, every nuance of, of Christ's suffering, God was sovereign over. Isaiah tells us that prophetically. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. And so was the cross a good thing? Or a bad thing? Yes, it was both. It was both the greatest act of injustice and sin ever, if you will. But at the same time, it was the greatest and most glorious act of divine redemption ever. Does God, can God do that? Yes, He does. That's who God is. He, he turns the most horrific events into the greatest blessings because He's sovereign over them. He can do that. That's what we see here in this text. So when I'm entering a trial, the one, maybe the first thing I need to remember is to come and humble myself under the sovereignty of God in that trial. That's what, that's what we see in the life of Job. That's hard, isn't it? Sometimes that sort of comes at the end of the trial. It did for Job in a way. Maybe that's God's point in it entirely. Is that we would come and see Him in His greatness and His glory. We can't explain what He's doing or how He's doing it, but we say, God, I am nothing. You are everything. Have Your way. Whatever it is. It's better than my plan. Yeah, I struggle with that. I struggle with that. Sometimes I think, you know what, what I want, my desires, my plans, they look a lot happier than what I think God's might be. And I'm almost afraid of God's plans. You ever felt that way? I don't want to be like that. I want to trust the glory of God's plans before desiring my own. And then sometimes when I think about that, my love grows dim. And my trust begins to be feeble. And so what's the remedy for that? Think just like Job, we need to turn back and look at the glory of God in detail. His attributes. Who is He? And who am I? And I humble myself under His mighty hand, knowing that everything He thinks is far better, far superior than my thoughts and His ways than mine. And then when I become anxious because I don't know what His plan has for me, what am I called to do here? Cast all of that anxiety upon him. And here's the other thing. God God never brings his children into trial to do us harm. Look what it says. Humble yourself under mighty hand of God so that what? At the right time he may what? Exalt you. He always has our progress in view. Always, always, always. You you can you can be entirely assured that when God ordains a test and a trial for you that it's never for your demise as a believer. Never. Never. It's always for your good and His glory. And you can cast your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. And, and yet, the battle rages on. Some of the most difficult moments in a trial are go on in the mind, right? Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So we have to remain firm in our faith, looking again to God, trusting Him, asking Him to give us the faith because remember, He's the source of that faith anyway. God, help me to trust you. And here's something that, that there's so much more that, that could say there. Again, I'm just scratching surfaces here. Here's something that's encouraging. Resist Satan. How? By going back to the Word of God, being firm in the faith, understanding God's promises, viewing God's character, trusting Him, believing what He says, but also resisting Him by knowing something. Do you see it in verse 9? I resist the devil by staying grounded in the Word of God, the character of God and His promises, but also by knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by her brotherhood throughout the world. That's an important part of survival and suffering, is knowing there's a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ who are right now going through the same thing and have throughout history. Do you know how we can practically benefit from that exhortation, knowing that the same suffering. Here, here's a couple of ways. I'm not, I don't do well with this, but maybe you do. Read biographies. 
you look back. It, it, this is such a great vantage point to look back and read the lives of believers whom God has used for His glory and basically every single one of them has suffered well. Have you noticed that common theme? Read them. Here's another thing that's been super encouraging to me. Read hymns. Do you all have a good hymn book at home? You need one. If you don't have one, I've got a get hymns of grace. You can go online, Grace to You website, hymns of grace. You need a good hymn book because if, if you're not real good at reading biographies like me, you can open a hymn book and you can read a hymn and you can see the heart of a suffering Christian and how they survived it, how they endured it. It's so helpful. You can go to bed at night reading hymns. And if you get a, if you get a good hymn book, sometimes they just they, they, they scatter Scriptures throughout in between those hymns. Oh, that's such a blessing. That is such a blessing. Soak up those hymns. Memorize them. Sing them together. That is a great thing. That's one way of remembering that your brotherhood has suffered just like you have under these trials. And verse 10, after you have suffered a little while. That is always how the Scriptures talk about the time of suffering. Have you noticed that? It's just a little while. It's not forever. After the little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is such a good news. God may, like Job, bring you out of the trial in this life. That's true, right? He does that a lot. And we can pray for that. God is able, and, and what He often plans for His children is that, that following that season of testing, you will be fruitful beyond what you could imagine. And, and, and so, that's what the Scriptures tell us too. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. It's what Hebrews 12 told us, right? That right now, in that season of discipline, it's painful, right? It's not pleasant, but what? Afterwards, it yields what? The peaceable fruit of righteousness. So fruitfulness is God's following of seasons of testing and suffering and trial. But sometimes, what we see in verse 10 doesn't come in life. Sometimes it comes through death. And that's good too, isn't it? That's hard to embrace, but that's good too. Because yes, in the eternal glory, the one who has called us to eternal glory in Christ will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish us. That, that's going to be the, our condition eternally, right? So whether in this life or the next, whether through healing or homegoing, this is God's promise to us in following seasons of difficulty. And again, remember, to Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He is the one who is in control of it all. Okay, look through the lens of the Father's discipline. Look through the lens of the Father's knowledge. Look through the lens of God's sovereignty. 1 Peter 5, 6-11. through 11. Here's another one this morning. Look through the lens of God's goodness. Would you turn with me to Luke 11? These last few are going to come pretty short here. And then we'll, we'll pray and sing and head out for the day. Luke 11. Let me read to you verses 1-13. through 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when He finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray as God taught His disciples. And He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. And for we ourselves forgive, for, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. 
The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your heavenly Father, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Just a short point on this text. One thing to think of is simply this. When we enter seasons of pressure... Doesn't it cause us to pray? Doesn't it? We, our prayer life it changes. We, we ask for different things. We, we talk with God about different things. The, the trivialities seem to fall away. Right? It's even, when, even when we sit down to mealtime, like, oh Jesus, thank you for this food. Thanks for a great day. Hey, uh, talk later. Bye. You know, it's not that anymore. It's God. Thank you for our, our thanksgiving increases, right? And, and our desires to God become more specific and real and thoughtful because we're under pressure. And we need Him. We feel our need for Him. Our, our need for Him never changes, but we experience and feel our need for Him to, in, in a greater degree. And that's exactly the way it should be. And, and, and God tells us to come to Him. This is exactly what Jesus is teaching. Come and, and come like a beggar to the throne of grace, so that you may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Pray, ask. Just I love the intensity with which Jesus paints the picture of prayer here in this. The, the man absolutely destitute coming and pounding on the door of his friend's house until that friend gets up and gives him what he needs. That's something. And, and he says, ask and seek and find and knock and so on. But here's the point that I, that I want to leave you with with this text. As we pray, sometimes we feel in prayer, especially in a trial, like we are talking to a God who is slow to give us good things. Like we've got to coax him into being nice to us. God, I just, I feel like I'm praying like I'm really not going to get good out of this prayer. It feels like things are getting worse. Maybe, you, maybe you're not as nice as I thought you were sort of thing. Does that make sense? Is it the, the severity of God feels heavy on us. And Jesus wants us to be, to be rid of that thought in terms of the father-son relationship. He wants us to think of God as a very good, generous Father. But there's something else we need to couple with that is when we come to God and ask Him specifically for things in a trial and test, He may not give us what we're asking for. Does that make Him not good then? Does that make Him begrudging to us? No. See, here's the point that I want you to think about. God always gives us better than we ask. Will you remember that? God always gives us better than we ask because He is by nature good. Think how it is with your children. It's exactly what Jesus wants us to do. When your child comes to you and says, I'm hungry, you're going to like, here's a, here's a scorpion. <laughs> Right? That's just a really amazing picture, right? Hey, mom, can I have some scrambled eggs this morning? <laughs> Snake! You know, like, no, we don't do this, right? This is not who we are. And neither is God. He's not like, He is good beyond all that we can think. And when He doesn't give us exactly what we're asking for, it's because He's giving us something better than we're asking for. 
That's, that's what we need to believe. And he says it here like this. He give, How much more, right? If you know how to give good gifts to your children, and you're evil, and I'm evil, then how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him all the full array of the blessings in heavenly places that the Holy Spirit can bestow upon the children of God? Think of that. When I pray, God, Help me to trust You. Not to be afraid of Your plans. Not to be afraid of what You're going to give me, but to know that whatever I ask for, if I don't receive it, You're going to give me better than I ask. That's truth. That's absolute truth. So look through the lens of the Father's discipline. Look through the lens of the Father's knowledge of His sovereignty and then the lens of of God's goodness. I'm, not, I'm just going to tell you this one and I'm going to go right to the last one because we already spent a Sunday on it a few weeks ago. This is another one. Look to the lens of joy. And that's, that's Philippians 4, 4 through 9. We spent good time on that a few weeks ago. Look through the lens of joy. We have joy in knowing that God is near in coming before Him in prayer and in receiving His good gifts that we can think upon. All right, here's here's the last one for today. Look through the lens of witness to Christ. All right, let's turn to 1 Peter 3. Look through the lens of witness to Christ. All right, remember the, the context of 1 Peter. Suffering saints, right? Suffering in a hostile world. Their sufferings were particularly focused on the national events that were going around them, right? They were living in a very hostile environment. But there was personal suffering as well uh, mentioned throughout the letter of 1 Peter. And so, Peter writes in verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer... For righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is far better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. We often, we often quote or think about verse 15 in context of witness. Right? We say, yeah, I, I want to always be ready to give an answer, an argument, a defense of the gospel when someone asks me, about the hope that is in me. And maybe a lot of times we think of that interchange between us and an unbeliever in a very pleasant context. We go to work and someone looks at our work life and they're like, wow, they do, they do excellent work. What's different about you? Well, Jesus is my Savior and, and He's changed my heart and I, and I try to work without selfishness now and I, and I try to work in love. Interesting context here, beloved. He's talking about when someone asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Hope in context of what? Suffering for the sake of righteousness. That's where hope is shown. When I walk, when I'm when I am drawn into great suffering, even community suffering in terms of relational suffering for the sake of righteousness. And yet, I respond to that. I respond to the God-ordained circumstances in my life with hope and joy and not despair. That is unusual. See, it's Christian suffering that precipitates the opportunity for hope to be seen in our lives. And that hope doesn't come out of unbelievers who suffer. Have you noticed that? 
what is pressed out of your heart and through your lips and through your face when you're suffering? Is it hope or despair? That's the context Peter's talking about. Christian suffering is like a garlic press that squeezes us and it and from our lives oozes the hope of the Gospel. The hope of the glorious return of Jesus Christ. The hope of the sovereignty of God and so on and so on. God's promises fill us in those moments. We run to them. That's not the way it is with an unbeliever suffering in, in, in our context or personally. And so when we suffer and hope comes out of us because we're resting in the promises of God, that provides some of the most precious opportunities for witness. And isn't that why God leaves us here in our suffering? Jesus prayed for us in His high priestly prayer. He, he, he prayed for His disciples and He said, Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And that you sanctify them through the Word. Your Word is truth. And make them one with me. So that what? The world will know that you sent me. Do you remember that in Jesus' high priestly prayer? He moves the, the troubles of the, the disciples for whom He prays toward evangelism. Let them be like this in the world and under Satan's pressure so that the world will know that you sent me. That ought to be one of our spirit-given motives in suffering well that hope would be squeezed out of us and the world around us who watches us suffer would believe that Jesus was sent by God to be the Savior of the world. That's why we're here. That is why we're here. And that's one of the reasons we suffer. May the Lord fill us with these truths. We need, we need scriptural stones to walk on so that our minds are guided down the right paths as, 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 as the days come upon us more and more. And remember, the Lord is coming soon. And it's going to be great. It's going to be a new heaven and a new earth which righteousness dwells. Oh, we have nothing but the best to look forward to. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's, it's right that we talk about these things. And it's not morbid in the light of the Gospel and Your promises. It actually calms us and gives us hope and joy but neither do we want to deny reality. Help us to see things as they are. Father, give us the eyes. Give us the lenses. The lenses of Your Word to look at these things the way You want us to. And Father, we confess to You again our need for Christ. It's, easy to, it's easier to talk about these things when we're all together encouraging one another and singing together and it, on a Sunday morning, but it gets harder when we're under the heat of it and the weight of it, and the night is long. So Father, bring, bring these texts and Your promises back to our minds and may we humble ourselves under Your mighty hand. And we pray, Lord, that Christ be glorified and that we be faithful to share the Gospel of Jesus Christ with our friends and neighbors and co-workers. Thank You for my brothers and sisters in Christ here with me this morning. I love them. And You love them. Thank You for giving to us Your Word. Thank You. I'm so thankful for these brothers and sisters who are faithful to, to hear Your Word and receive it and delight in it. And who are in earnest and desire greatly about being who You've called them to be. Father, our sufficiency is not in ourselves. And we fail often, but Christ is our righteousness. And so, we, we walk on in the armor. Our head is protected by Your salvation. Our chest is protected by Your righteousness. We, in Your strength, hold the shield of faith. And we walk with shoes of the Gospel. 
and we're girded up with truth. May we remain taught in all of our endeavors by persistent prayer. And when we fail, again, thank you for being our righteousness, Lord Jesus. You have removed our guilt. You have absorbed our punishment. You have dressed us in your righteousness. Thank you. And that gives us hope and joy to press on to the prize of the high calling of God in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's sing a couple more songs and then we'll, we'll go home.